Hey, hey, and uh, welcome to it. Yeah, Employment Law Show is back, and uh, good to have you along. John Scholes here. Stan Fanselberg is our guy, courtesy Sanfiru to Mark and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Stan's going to be answering all the questions and emails on the uh, on the show today. And, yeah, beyond that, getting hold of Stan and his team, simple one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. help at employmentlawyer.ca, and the website built. For you to use any time, it's free, it's anonymous, full of great stuff, and access to the Sevens Calculator, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We'll probably refer to that later on in the show, and you can go there and use that anytime uh, you'd like. A bunch of emails to get through today on the show, Stan, but we always start off with the uh, the case of the day, the thought of. What's, uh, what's going on, pal? Yeah, good morning, John. Uh, today, I just wanted to start off with uh, what I think is a long overdue trend that I've noticed in the case law of awarding you know, what we would call exemplary damages, John, in cases where parties have just acted extremely unreasonably. So you know, to, to start off, you know, this really all starts in about 2014 when the Supreme Court, for the first time seemingly, recognizes this obligation between parties to perform contracts in good faith. And I mean, it seems like a fairly straightforward and obvious observation, but up until that point, there had never been a general principle in law that you had to actually perform contracts in good faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, And since that time, courts have really run with this and have had, frankly, significantly less patience for usually employers in situations where they have just been unduly insensitive and disrespectful when employees have been let go. So, so to give our listeners some examples, in 2001, uh, there was a contractual dispute between you know, an independent contractor on paper, as we know, uh, and, uh, and a company about that very issue, about whether he had been constructively dismissed and whether he was an employee. And not only was he found to be an employee, John, but he was awarded $25,000 in impunitive or exemplary damages uh, and the reason being, the court essentially recognized that, first of all, this company, throughout this, at some point in this litigation, admitted that this person was an employee. Yet, despite admitting that, they refused throughout the litigation to pay the employee their statutory entitlements, their minimum entitlements under the act. And on top of that, they also took a number of. <laughs> just punitive steps in throughout the litigation, you know, what was mentioned in the case, John, was that the lawyer refused to accept service of the claim simply to make the plaintiff's life more difficult. And Mm -hmm. these are the types of actions that the courts have seemingly had very little patience for. Uh, Another really great example is one that just came out this year involved uh, Hudson's Bay Company. And in this case, they were $55,000 in these exemplary damages because, you know, and the reason being, again, Hudson's Bay was just unduly insensitive in the way that they terminated this person. So in this particular instance, the employee was let go from a managerial job, but at the same time, they tried to offer him a salesperson job uh, with, you know, a demoted position, significantly less compensation and not even a guarantee of any hours. And, you know, with a standard employment contract that says, hey, if we fire you the next day, you're getting only your minimums at that point. And the employee understandably refused to sign that contract and refused to accept that position. And the judge in awarding that those damages actually had a couple of reasons. 
one of which was that the judge actually found that that offer was misleading and was not actually put forward in good faith and was only put forward to take for allow the company to take the position now that they don't owe the employee anything beyond their minimums because the employee had failed to mitigate by not taking that job mm-hmm. and, and some other actions. And this has actually been something that's been consistent in a number of cases where they've been awarding these types of damages, John, that the, the company undertook was that they you know failed to pay the employee their wages in time and failed to issue the record of employment in time. And you know, these have significant, you know, spe- speaking to employees, obviously, as I do on a very regular basis who have been let go from their job, this has a significant toll, I can assure you, on an employee's well-being because they're already in a difficult emotional state. And then you're applying even more financial pressure by not giving them the money they're owed at a minimum yeah. and not even allowing them to access their EI entitlements, which they've paid into their entire lives. So those two actions are simply unnecessary and there's no logical reason why any company would engage in them other than to put pressure on an employee to take a a frankly not very good deal and you know the real reason i saw this uh trend really highlighted recently is that even in the commercial context even between two parties where there is no power imbalance like there is an employment relationship john a recent court of appeal case upheld an award of $25,000 in a landlord and tenant dispute for, again, in being unduly insensitive. In this particular dispute, uh, the tenant uh, was a, a bar, a commercial bar that had to abandon their lease. Uh, and as often happens, they get locked out and all of their stuff gets locked out with them. Right. Uh, and the tenant asserted their rights and said, well, we want our stuff back. And the landlord moved their stuff to a storage area firstly and then said, you got four days to pick it up. You know, they, they kind of calmed down. It seemingly seems like they came to an agreement to pick it up about a week later. And then when the tenant shows up to pick up their stuff, the landlord refuses to release it to them. And actually, you know, then took the position they weren't owed the stuff and, and used their stuff in the next commercial property or sorry, the next commercial wow. enterprise in that property which was another restaurant or bar establishment. And again, the court you know, took, had very little sympathy for the landlord's position here and said that the landlord was entirely blameworthy, you know, that the, the company or the tenant had proven that it was, they were entitled to the stuff and essentially the landlord illegally withheld it. And that, that type of high-handed conduct that was so insensitive, that's the type of conduct that was... Uh, that allowed the court to find that it warranted this $25,000 in exemplary damages. So, you know, really, it's something that I think uh, is, an, as I said at the beginning, a long overdue trend. Uh, I've seen employers get away with far too much in, you know, in litigation strategy, in ways to, sim- or frankly, just being in, uh, incompetent and not meeting basic timelines like filing a record of employment within five days. I mean, all you have to do is click a few buttons and upload it online. And not doing that, you know, an employee cannot access EI and it can take several months before EI will eventually just say, you know, we don't need the record of employment, we'll allow you to access EI. So just steps like that, John, you know, it, it it's really unnecessary. And I think it just shows you that employment law, like many cases, often just turn on basic decency. 
And, you know, I would, I would ask that all parties, whether employers, employees, what have you, just consider their obligations to each other. Even if the relationship's coming to an end, that doesn't mean that you have a right to be, uh, uh, let's, let's continue with the word and and duly insensitive in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Another reason why I always reach out to you guys when it's, uh, when it's a matter of employment first, especially for uh, employees, email is help at employmentlawyer.ca. Stan, I want to get to the first email of the day as we get through a bunch of these uh, over the remainder of the show. Kelsey says, I've worked through two separate employment agencies for the same company for over 20 years. They laid me off during the pandemic, and then in January, the employment agency terminated me. Is there anything I can do? Yeah, absolutely, Kelsey. I mean, at a minimum, you know, the second employment agency, no question is your employer. And I don't think they would dispute that. Uh, it's really the, you know, the more interesting part of this question, John, is the fact that it sounds like Kelsey was working for two separate employment agencies for the same mm-hmm. company. So does the company that she had worked at for 20 plus years become an employer in that situation? And, and there's absolutely you know uh factors that can determine that that company despite having hired this person as a contractor through an employment agency mm-hmm. can also be the employer because you can have more than one employer in a situation like that uh, and it will come down to things like who has control over the empl- uh, over the employee who right. pays the employee you know who provides the equipment who tells them what to do who tells them where to be just you know the basic tenets of what we think of as an employment relationship. Just because you don't have a direct corp, you know, uh, connection between some corporate entities, doesn't mean from an employment law perspective that you get to avoid your obligations. So, Kelsey, I, I definitely you know as number one, you're definitely owed money by the employment agency, uh, and I would s- strongly suggest that you're probably owed money by the company that you worked at for twenty plus years as a employee in my view but you know i'm sure they were calling her uh, a contractor so let's just say for sake of argument kelsey's owed 16 months severance based on what happened to her so if these two entities are both responsible is it up to them to get together and, and hash it out who pays what or is it right away down the line 50 50 how does that work Yep. You, you know you hit it on the head john it's it's basically it's not kelsey's responsibility to figure it out you know mm-hmm. that's why we have a, a concept called severally and jointly liable they are severally and jointly liable amongst themselves and they can figure out who owes you what. But technically speaking, when you get that judgment, John, against both companies, they're both liable for the full amount. And, you know, it's between them to figure out who, who pays what. Now, when you say both liable, that doesn't mean she double dips. If it's, if it's you know, $80,000 or dividing up 80, she's not getting 80 times two from both entities. Uh, no, no. And that's yeah. why usually they would cooperate to try to figure out a way, you know, to, to pay the employee in that situation so that they don't yeah. double dip. And of course you're not entitled to, to double dip uh, in, in general, you know, employment law has a mitigation component to it. But as I said, it's not really for Kelsey to figure out how to, mm-hmm. who owes her what that's between the two companies to figure out. And with that, we will slide into a quick break and get to lots more. We'll continue with the employment law show. Stand by. And we are back at it. So good to have you with us this hour. Stan Fanselberg, courtesy of Sam Fury to Mark and LLP, is here to answer your questions. We're already getting a bunch of emails uh, coming through already. Appreciate that. Uh, another email, Rajesh, uh, says, Hey, Stan, my employer is selling the business and tells me the buyer is going to hire me. However, it's been almost two months and I haven't heard from the buyer. Can I still go after my former employer? What do you think, pal? 
Yeah, uh, absolutely, Rajesh. I mean, as a minimum, you know, when there's a sale of a business, and usually a sale of a business involves the sale of assets of a business as opposed to the sale of shares, which would just transfer, you know, the employment with the business. But when you're talking about sale of assets of a business, there is always a termination that occurs by law. Uh, as soon as the seller sells the business, uh, that person is being terminated. Now, if the buyer uh, hires that person, there are provisions in the Employment Standards Act that say the buyer recognizes all the service and essentially the, the, the relationship continues as is or can continue as is uh, unless the buyer wants to introduce an employment contract and treat it as a new employment. But outside of that context, it's, a, it's assumed that if you're hiring that person, you are hiring them with all of their previous years of service uh, coming along with them. But in, in Rajesh's situation, you know, the, the buyer obviously is not getting back to him. It sounds like, frankly, the seller engaged in some, some of the conduct that we were talking about at the top of the show and, uh, and has tried to get away without paying Rajesh their entitlements. And absolutely, as I say, there's always a termination that occurs and you are entitled to whatever your entitlements are based on age, position, length of employment from the seller at that point. Rajesh, we really hope that uh, that helped uh, your particular case. It's interesting, though. I mean, how where's the? There's often a lot of confusion when it comes to that. And do you often see at the firm that firms, or at least that, that companies, are are fighting each other when it comes to who pays severance, or it's pretty much cut and dry? Well, it's pretty. You know, it depends on the situation. Because one one of the situations where that would occur, and where I've seen that uh, happen, is where a you know they basically forget about an employee. For right. during the selling period, mm-hmm. and then the, the buyer hires them afterwards, not recognizing that they were an employee of the previous seller, and then they terminate them quickly afterwards. Be, but because they're you know terminated by the seller and terminated by the buyer at the same time, they actually right. could have two separate causes of action with d- different entitlements running at different periods. The other instance where you'll see that is where somebody gets you know comes over with the transition, doesn't last very long. And then the buyer tries to assert that no, you know, the old the old employer terminated you as well, so you gotta get their entitlements for them, you know, basically making a claim that there's joint liability between the two employers. So in the event that somebody is um, an employee and uh, this new company comes in, buys it, becomes the new boss, and you think, ah, you know what? This A, I maybe not want to work for this new buyer because I don't like them for whatever reason. Or maybe this is a good time for me to skip out of here and go back to school or decide to try a new career. Um, are they owed any severance at that point? Uh, well, they can be. It depends on the, you know, the, the specifics. Right. And you know, if essentially there's a way to to get around whatever is happening. So what I'm essentially asserting here is that sometimes what, I, what you often see in it, is that when you have an asset sale, as I said, the buyer can treat the employee as a new employee and essentially give them a new contract with those terrible termination clauses that we hate that might limit somebody's entitlements significantly. Now, now that may not mean much to an employee who's been around for a year, but an employee who's been around for two or th- three decades, you know, now they're going from potentially 20, 24 months of entitlements to ESA minimum. And in situations like that, that actually might give the, uh, the employee grounds to say, I don't have to accept this job. And that's not treated as a failure to mitigate and allows you to pursue the seller 
for your full 2024 months of entitlement. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's something, um, I mean, we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but that's something that uh, an employee that is currently part of the company that is being sold gets purchased, and all of a sudden, you know, day one, they, they see an employment contract get slid across the desk. That is a major red flag, yeah? Really, anytime you see a contract slid across the desk that you were not expecting, that's a major red flag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Want to get into uh, Danny's email. Danny says, hey, guys, uh, love the show. I refuse to get the vaccine for religious reasons, but my employer would not budge and terminated me without anything. Is this discrimination and a wrongful dismissal? Yeah, Danny, this is really the hot button topic throughout mm-hmm. this year in employment law and re- you know something that is continuing to develop in the case law. There, there is one arbitration case that I'm aware of in which an arbitrator did find that the assertion of uh, religious reasons should have been accommodated and that the employee's termination in that particular context was unjustifiable and was actually discriminatory. So especially when you throw a religious ele- element in there, it becomes very nuanced <clears throat> and right. difficult to assess. Uh, it, but the other aspect here that I would suggest that gives Danny... Uh, the, the right to make an assert, uh, assertion for wrongful dismissal is the fact that he's terminated. Now, most of these cases dealing with these vaccines that have upheld these policies have largely upheld them on the with the understanding that these people were not terminated. They were placed on an unpaid leave. You know, so essentially there was some crazy situation that happened in the fall and winter of 2021. We all recognize that there were extraordinary circumstances. And based on those extraordinary circumstances, the employer could take a precautionary approach, implement this mandate, put a person on unpaid leave, potentially. You know, that's that's something that's been developing, but is certainly by no means guaranteed in the case law either. Uh, but, you know, the also the assumption with that line of theory and line of thinking is that, well, at some point they're going to come back. You've put them on an unpaid leave. You haven't fired them. Right. The extraordinary circumstances that we've dealt with, that we were deal- dealing with in 2021 are certainly not the circumstances we're dealing with right now. And they're, you know, in a lot of situations at this point, arbitrators are saying, well, you've got to bring these people back because you know, it's to have a two shot, uh, two dose vaccine mandate at this point is starting to make a lot less sense. And the only, the other case that has dealt with employees being actually terminated for these vaccine policies that case actually asserted that that was unjustifiable. And the, the line of thinking there was that, listen, you know, these people are not doing something that's insubordinate. Right. You know, if you, if you agree, as almost every employer does, that this is an employee's choice and they absolutely have their own right to make this choice, we don't have to keep you employed, they say, but it's your choice. So if you're, it's your choice and you have that right, it can't be insubordination. And if it can't be insubordination then what is, gives you the right to assert cause and to say that the relationship is irreconcilable at that point just because they've asserted their right to choose something you don't like. So with the wrongful, the, the, the termination aspect in particular, I think makes it a wrongful dismissal. And I would encourage Danny to give us a call at the firm and, uh, and have a discussion with us about what we could do for, to help them out here. 
It's interesting, though, because at this, at this point in time, as we're almost done 2022, is a lot of this not residual effect of the mandates that went into effect? I mean, you had to be a, you had to be a federal employee to even go under that, uh, that banner of, you know, you're not working here unless you're, you're vaccinated. That, that didn't hold water for the regular Joe or even federally regulated, did it? Don't you, didn't you have to be directly a federal employee to be under that type of scrutiny? So why is this now still a thing with employers? So the federal government and you know, the provincial governments in their capacity as employers. And that's an important distinction I think we all have to make because there was no general mandate for citizens as we, you know, nobody, Mm -hmm. the government did not say every citizen has to go get a shot. Now they did say in their capacity as employers to the various bureaucracies in government that yes, those people had to get a shot to work. And those mandates have largely been dropped as far as to the best of my knowledge. Um, it, where we talk about you know these mandates and, and becoming particularly problematic is when private employers made the unilateral decision to impose these types of terms on the employment relationship. A- and that is where almost all the litigation is happening right now. And you know the, the rationale employers are using is saying, well, occupational health and safety, we have a there's a provision in there that says, you have to take every reasonable precaution to keep an employee safe. And they're asserting that based on that, you know, ambiguous uh, provision, they have the implicit authority to do something like this. And I personally take a lot of issue with that because I think that if there is an authority that has a right to do this, it's the democratically elected authority that of government, not a private institution that's looking at a bill you know, and implying something from that bill that the government never explicitly directed employers to do. It's interesting stuff, man. Like I said, very nuanced. Anytime, by the way, if, if any of this finds you, you find it confusing or you need help in that regard, always reach out to Stan. It's, it's a chat. It will cost you nothing just to get your bearings, right? And that is 1-855-821-5900. But here and now, so let's, uh, let's move on down. Who do we got coming up uh, next? Let me check. We have uh, Claire. Claire's next. Thanks, Claire. Appreciate it ahead of time. It says, my department is being outsourced to another company, and this new company wants me to stay uh, as a contractor. That's interesting. Is that even legal? Uh, it can be. I mean, I can see ways that could be done legally. I, I suspect it's not being done legally in Claire's case, but certainly you can terminate an employee, pay them what you owe them, and then say, hey, we've outsourced your job. And if you go look over there at ABC Company, they might, got, they might have a job for you. And, you know, it might be as an employee, it might be as a contractor, it might be as a fake contractor. You know, it, it could fall under any of the rubrics, but there is a legal way to do it, as I say. Now, the illegal way to do that would be to assert that, hey, Claire, you know, we're outsourcing your job, so you're going to go work over there as a contractor. Well, no, you know, you're, if you're an employee, frankly, if you're an employee doing the job one day and you're doing the same job the next day, you're probably an employee the, same, the second day as well. Uh, and this is all, you know, call it tax manipulation, employment law manipulation, what have you. Uh, and and you know, to be fair, it's not always solely in the employer's interest. Oftentimes, it, the employee has certain advantages to becoming a contractor as well. But the disadvantages that are significant, John, is that you lose your rights as an employee and your rights to severance as an employee. Uh, 
obviously that we always have the assertion, as I say, to make the the claim that well, you you know you're only a contractor on paper. In reality, you've always been an employee, and you still have those rights. But that's what the employer's trying to do in that situation. They're trying to absolve themselves of liability as your employer and make you a quote unquote contractor so they don't owe you what they owe you as an employee. It's all, like you said, very nuanced stuff. Let's, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to take a short break now. I want to get to the phone call after the break. So, uh, Laura, stand by. We're going to get to you. So, we'll continue Employment Law Show. Stand by. Alrighty, welcome back to it. Still got lots of time. Laura, thank you so much for, uh, for standing by briefly. How are you? Hi, good morning. Great. What's, um, uh, what's on your mind, my friend? I want, like, some advice, please. I mm-hmm. am involved with WSIB, and due to the situation, I'm not able to return to my workplace I have to seek new employment. But what I would like to know is I've been told that my employer will eventually frustrate my contract. I don't know what that means exactly. And they have given, an, like they say, they have no idea when that's going to happen. It's an open timeline. So I'd like to know, like, it's 16 and a half years employment. And is there severance expected? And what can I rush this timeline? Or do I have any control of that? Okay. So yeah, I'm assuming the issue you have with WSAB that led to you being unable to work is a medical issue? Yeah, due to my injuries, I can't return to that workplace. And WSAB has, you know, stated that explicitly and found that like there's a decision that says that in their, their I assume yeah. they're like helping you uh, through a second career and, and helping yeah. you kind of find some, develop other skills. Okay. So right. the concept you're talking about is called medical frustration of contract. And, and basically what it means is that through no party's fault because of your medical condition, the employment relationship can't continue. Uh, and under those circumstances, you are. entitled to your minimum entitlements under the Employment Standards Act, but nothing nothing above that. So your minimum entitlements will depend on, uh, number one, does this company have a payroll of over $2.5 million? Because if it does, then essentially you said you were there for 16 and a half years? At this point, yes. I'm, I'm technically still employed, so... Yeah. So yeah. And the clock continues to run. Absolutely. Right. But let's, you know, if we take a snapshot right now, your minimum entitlements, assuming the company has a payroll of 2.5 million or greater is mm-hmm. 24 and a half weeks of pay. Uh, in terms of the timeline to assert that it's really dependent just on the medical evidence. If your medical evidence is clear that you will never come back there, you don't have to wait months, years to make that assertion. You could just make the assertion now to your employer and say, listen, I, I'm not coming back. You know that. WSIB they have. Knows WSIB has made that assertion to them. And they refuse to trigger the, the frustration because, yeah, I understand. They you know, said can... that they do it at certain points and they have no idea when that's going to be coming up in the future. So what they said. They because do it they're... in groups. Yeah, they're probably just trying to avoid the obligation uh, because, as I say, it's not about timeline. It's about okay. medical evidence and what it establishes. So if your medical evidence is clear that you're frustrated, your employment contract is frustrated, yeah. uh, then you should assert that yourself to the employer and say, where's my severance? And if they say, don't worry about it, you know, then that's probably the time to call us at the office and have a conversation with a lawyer to see what we can do. And I'm trying to like also utilize my union, but they don't have, like uh, they're not a very strong uh, union. Part of a union. They're not a strong doesn't... union. Like they, they're not strong. They only are new. So they, uh, well, they don't do anything until I ask them to do it, right? 
that's pretty much all unions to be fair uh and really you you know at the end of the day you have to assert your rights so sorry i didn't realize you were part of a union in which case we actually would not be able to help you unfortunately so you do have to go through the union um so yeah i mean i I know that's frustrating uh but there's that's the way labor law works and that's the way our union uh laws yeah it's just like they're so weak that like it's almost like a hurdle now instead of helping me but oh i really appreciate your advice okay so i'll try to push that myself i guess the other option you might want to consider is speaking to the ministry of labor i'll be honest i don't i'm not 100 percent certain whether they can help a unionized employee but i i believe that i don't see any reason they can because can't because your entitlements still are your entitlements whether you're an employee of the union or not in that situation Okay, so right. that's an option, and then basically, like, I have to try to get my union to assert it? Uh, through the ministry, you can speak to them directly. I don't think you have to go through the union for that. Okay. All right. Thanks, Laura. Appreciate the call. And just, you know, it's it's amazing, Stan. We have this, I mean, we didn't ask off the top because we, we just didn't ask, whatever. But mm-hmm. it's amazing how, and we've come into this every time that we, someone is... Awaken to the fact that being part of a union kind of takes San Fierro to market for the most part right out of it. And you could hear the change in her voice when she was like, oh, God, I got to deal with this union. You guys can't help me. They're weak. I mean, that you know, play that record again and again and again, right? How many times have we heard that? Uh, far too often, unfortunately. Oh. You know, many too many unions are, in in my view, again, I don't want to speak for other people, but in my view, they're, in, they're an institution that wants to preserve itself in the way, the easiest way to frankly do that is to kind of deal with the employer play nice collect your union dues and continue your press you know the institution and not rock the boat too much and that's frankly what it sounds like is happening to that person yeah it's a bit of a drag i, I know i mean my my wife has been part of a union for 25 years and while you're in there once you're uh, once the boat's afloat it's great the benefits are great they do a lot of good things but if it comes time that you're going out the door you ain't got a life jacket, son. That's just I've seen this so many times before. So, Laura, good luck with that, and keep us updated on yeah. how things uh, how things work. Want to uh, move into another email here before we take a uh, take a break? Jason's up next. Says, "Hey, Stan, uh, is the general rule of thumb two weeks of severance for every year? I work there. Jason's new, so let's fill him in." <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, I hear I hear the general rule of thumb idea often. Whether it's two weeks, sometimes you hear a month, um, and you know, there really is no general rule of thumb when it comes to employment law. There are minimum entitlements which often do correspond to two weeks per year, or can in certain situations. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, that that's a not a legal concept. That's just a general colloquial concept that people have a misunderstanding of. Uh, the reality is that you can get significantly more than two weeks per year. I've seen people get several months per year, you know, depending on the how how senior they are, how old they are, and how long or frankly short you've been there. Because if you've only been there for a year, but you are a CEO, I can assure you, you're getting, you know, four, five, six months in that situation. So there is no such general rule, Jason. And really, this is why we... You hear John say it all the time, go to the pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, type in a couple of uh, factors, and that will spit out a pretty clear uh, and basic understanding of what you're owed at that point. 
And with that, we'll slide into a quick break. I know we got a couple minutes to go, but I want to just clear it up so we can go straight through till uh, till pretty much the end. In that regard, yeah, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca gives you full and anonymous and easy access to the severance calculator, and that'll solve any of your uh, your questions when it comes to how much severance you should be owed, like uh, like our pal Jason there. And we will continue with more of the Employment Law Show. Hang on. You betcha. We're back at it. Still some time to go. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. And outside this hour of the show, you can always go to employmentlawyer.ca, the website there. There's many things to be learned. There's contact information there as well. And under the Knowledge Center banner at the top, drop-down menu, media, you will catch uh, past shows of this nature. You'll see some of the uh, the YouTube and Facebook chats that every, uh, the firm does on a uh, daily basis, as well as links to our long-running TV shows as well. Again, employmentlawyer.ca, simply the website there. Okay, Albert's up next. Email, back at it, Stan. Here we go. Can an employer terminate you while you're on disability leave? Well, I'm sure they can, but can they get away with it is more of the important question, right? Well, not only can they, John, I mean, they can actually do it legally. It's uh, I, it's something that I think a lot of employees are surprised to hear. But being on a disability leave doesn't guarantee you a job per se. Um, there, The important distinction here is whether or not you are being terminated because you're on disability or just happen to be terminated while you're on disability. So, you know, to give to give a, a pretty stark example. I mean, if you're part of a re- on disability and you're part of a restructuring of 150 people, you know, the fact that you're on disability doesn't protect you from being part of that restructuring. Now, you could still make the case that that person was chosen because they were disabled and you could try to make that assertion, but in and of itself, that doesn't, you know, there's nothing wrong with the employer making that decision. Um, now they do have additional obligations to disabled employees in that situation as well, because the RESA says, well, if someone is off on leave, you know, you have an obligation to either give them their job back or a comparable job back when they come back from that leave. Uh, so that's the next step in the analysis, John, is, is that, you know, if that restructuring does happen, is there a comparable job that you can point to? to say, hey, you should have at least given the, the employee the opportunity to test that job right now. So that is the important distinction here. Um, you know, actually, to give an example of a case I'm dealing with right now, kind of dealing with this, John, um, I had an employee who worked for a uh, car manufacturer for 20 plus years. Unfortunately, in 2012, she uh, had a injury at work, became permanently disabled in certain facets, continued to work, continued to be accommodated. Uh, up until this year, when the employer made a operational shift in their plans and essentially started producing a new vehicle, which, uh, you know, she worked on the line. It was no longer possible to accommodate her at that point. And that's not necessarily something we dispute. My client is very adamant that she agrees she could not do that job. Uh, And, you know, they went through a sham kind of, well, let's see what we can find for you. Not looking very hard, frankly, in my view. Uh, and then they terminated her claiming medical frustration of contract. And, you know, I speak to her and we, the first thing we do is we go on the employee's, uh, employer's website and we look around it to see what kind of jobs are available on that employer's website. And lo and behold, there's, she points to six different jobs that she says she can do. And granted, the distinction here is that she worked in the production factory and those jobs were more of the analysis office type. But nevertheless, you know, in, in this situation, when you're dealing with a massive employer like we are, they 
in my view, had to give her the opportunity to test those jobs. And the reason that they're saying they didn't is that, well, she doesn't have the qualifications, which I looking at the job descriptions, frankly, I, I find a little insulting because this is a woman who has intimate knowledge of the car manufacturer's products, processes, operations over 20 plus years. Yet, you know, you know from glean, what I can glean from the job description, the reason they say she doesn't have the qualifications is that when she started back when she in her early 20s, she only had a high school diploma. She did not get a secondary education. And, you know, as we know nowadays, almost every job, frankly, requires a secondary education. So they're making these assertions that she can't do these analyst jobs, you know, analyzing products and processes that she's frankly been doing for 20 plus years because she doesn't have that secondary diploma, uh, at, which, again, I think is completely wrong. But it speaks to this point about whether you can terminate someone on disability leave and what accommodation steps do you have to do if you are legitimately terminating them while on disability leave. Well said, my friend. If you want to reach out any uh, further than that, Albert, you know what to do. It's 1-855-821-5900. Robert is up next. Robert, thank you so much ahead of time for sending this email along. So Stan, I was terminated after 12 years of service. I was a technical, it was a technical role and I'm in my forties. I was offered 25 weeks severance. Is that fair? What do you think? You know, my, my gut reaction says that's low, Robert. Uh, that's in your mid forties in a technical role, 12 years. I did, I did expect something in the 10 to 12 month range, but we don't need to guess. I mean, there's two ways you can easily find out. You can go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca hit a couple of keystrokes and find out what you're owed, or you can give us a call for a free consultation at the firm and discuss uh, what steps you can take to not only decide if you have are receiving a fair package, but what mm. you can do if you're not receiving that fair package. And Robert, as mentioned, you can always go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Sure, run that thing through the, uh, the severance calculator. We'll give you a much more accurate and I would imagine enlightening number at that point because guaranteed you always get a short change for sure bob is coming up next thanks for all the emails by the way in the show today guys uh says my employer gave me a month of working notice i have an interview in halliburton and she denied my request for time off for that interview is that allowed uh honestly i would say absolutely not you know the whole purpose of working notice is to give the employee the opportunity while they still have a job and while they still have income coming in to go and find that next job. So you know, implicitly in this concept is the idea that if an employee has an opportunity, you have to let them uh, you try to explore that opportunity because you fired them. That's the reality. That's what working notice means. So, and you can't expect that they will not go out and look for work. And frankly, stopping them from looking for work is against your own interest as an employer because you may owe them more money if you refuse uh, mm. or if they don't find a job. And frankly, again, this goes back to what I was speaking about at the top of the show, John. This is the kind of conduct that is just not acceptable these days. You know, there is no reason. Now, I guess I should add that there could be re caveats and reasons why an employer may say, no, you can't go on that specific day. Right. But outside of, you know, assuming this is just bad faith, assuming they're just saying, no, we don't want you to go because we don't want you to go. That's that's unacceptable in my view. Those are the kind that's the kind of conduct the court, I think, would punish. And not only that, because they've undermined the whole concept of working notice, you don't have to stick around anymore because you could say, look, this is now a toxic environment. I need to go find my next job. You guys fired me. You made your decision. 
And if you're not going to give me the the time that I need when I get this interview, then I'm not sticking around. I'm going to go make looking for a job, my full-time job. Yeah. And I guess it should be a note as well that before, uh, you know, we sit back and we assume that, uh, you know, the 10 weeks or were one month of whatever working notice. Uh, yeah, one month of working notice. Let's mm-hmm. run that through the old filter and make sure there's more uh, severance paid on top of that as well, because that's probably not enough, right? Absolutely. And the other no. thing that's been something, you know, somewhat developing in the case law as well is that the idea that working notice is a lesser form of notice. Oh, wow. Because, you know, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. The idea, again, of notice is to give an employee a financial safety net and time and breathing space to go and find that next job. That's yeah. why when you do find that next job, you know, that safety net is essentially taken away when you have that mitigation principle kick in and dollar for dollar, you lose, uh, your damages get reduced. So the, it undermines the entire purpose of working notice if, if you don't give the person the opportunity. But also the fact totally. is that when they're working, they don't have the same realistic time to commit to looking for a job as they would if they were just unemployed and doing that full time. That's why some cases have asserted that that's a lesser form of working notice and they'll give you a, you know potentially more severance, more work, pay in lieu of notice if you're if you, a chunk of it is being covered by this working notice uh, that the employer gave you. And that is it for another show. Stan, wonderful as always. You want to reach out to Stan and his team now. I'll give you some information as we're walking out the door. one 821 Help at employmentlawyer.ca through email and the website every other time you need to. Pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Employment Law Show.